1: Greetings and welcome to the African-American Studies channel, the New Books Network. I'm James Stansel, your host. And today I'm going to be talking with Vincent J. Intandi. He wrote the book African-Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism and the Black Freedom Movement. And this book is published by our friends at Stanford University Press. He's an associate professor of history at Montgomery College in Maryland. I think you're going to enjoy this interview and it's very timely. Listen in. Professor Intandi, good day. How are you today, sir?
0: Good. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: It is my pleasure. And, you know, I often look for, you know, different books of all different types to have, Uh, you know, the authors on the show. And when I saw your book, Vincent, it was really something that I, you know, I I wanted to to, uh, share with the audience here and have you on. And it's pretty relevant, I think, for what's going on in the news media right now. Would you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So before we get into, you know, just the details of the, of the book, can you tell us a little bit about your your background, uh, the things that you do, or what got you interested in this topic?
0: Yeah, um, I'm originally from Syracuse, New York, upstate New York, okay. and um, I've been, I was in D.C., I was in Washington at American University where I received my doctorate, okay. and then I moved out to Florida, and I was teaching there for five years before I came back up here and have been up here for the last five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an associate professor of history at Montgomery College, uh, teaching African-American history in in U.S. foreign policy, Mm -hmm. and I'm also the director and founder of our new Institute for Race, Justice, and Community Engagement. Congratulations. Thank you. And up until this past year, I was also the director of research for American University's Nuclear Studies Institute, in which I would teach in Japan uh, every summer as well, and that partnership with uh, Ritsumeikan University just recently recently ended. Okay. Uh, and so how I got into this is for the majority of my career as an activist and as an academic, mm-hmm. it really revolved around the black freedom movement, civil rights issues, and nuclear weapons really wasn't on my radar. Okay. I was very abstract, okay. much like it was for a lot of young kids. And when I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki for the first time in 2005 and met with atomic bomb survivors, I was so moved, so filled with rage and disgust about what my country had done is when I came back, I uh, remember seeing my advisor at the time, I need to find a way to combine these two passions of mine, which is eliminating racism and eliminating nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. He said, answer me one question, what did African-Americans think about dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And trying to find the answer to that question started me on this path of research that mm-hmm. ultimately... So so much more and, and later became the book, so my research um, now really does focus on the intersection of race and nuclear weapons
1: so was this a, a dissertation for you?
0: in some ways um, so the dissertation was obviously much more in an academic sense mm-hmm. it was it was it was much longer um, when you're going to to publish a book it's pretty much gutted so chapters were added, chapters were taken out, two more years of research were done mm-hmm. I wanted to write both for an academic audience, but also a commercial audience. Right. So um, maybe you know, and, and I went much further in, in years of what I was looking at. So in a in a in a small sense, yes, but it became much much bigger than right, that. Right.
1: To to make it a book project for every you know that's you know for more for general audiences. Right. You had to go beyond. I guess what you're Absolutely. saying. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I wanted, you know, I envisioned having, you know, in one sense I envisioned in terms of African American history there being this giant brick wall that we are still trying to fill in. And and this I saw was a missing brick. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create a book in that if there were peace activists or anti-nuclear folks that really didn't know much about African American history, they picked this up, they would they would learn about this history, and vice versa. If there were those that were interested in black studies, interested in people wow. like Malcolm. There's those they would learn about then the anti-nuclear movement, um, which maybe they didn't know too much about. Sure,
1: sure, they can see the intersection uh, between those areas. Wow, you're great! I mean, and that's exactly what attracted me to your work when I first saw it. I was like, oh, wow, African Americans against the bomb. It wasn't something that you necessarily always thought about. So, so again, thank you for you know making that connection and, and doing this work and um, research. So maybe can you tell the audience? Vincent, how long did it take for you to complete this book project?
0: Oh, in one way, shape, or form, about ten years. Okay. It was something also where you know, the, even when we get into this, the last chapter, mm-hmm. I was writing that uh, while President Obama was still president, mm-hmm. and I knew I was going to have to address that issue. But the worst thing I could do as a historian is predict something and be wrong, and then it's there forever, right? right. So tricky things about that as things were happening, and um, but yeah, from beginning to end, from contract and from you know. So everything from beginning to end in about it took about ten years. Okay, yeah,
1: and that's what I hear a lot from you know scholars around you know a, a ten year um, period. And, you know, it's, it's just always good to point out to people that you know these books just don't <laughs> don't just show up. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of research to uh, complete book projects like this. So it's I feel like it's, it's very important to emphasize that to the um, to the audience, and, you know, and the people who are listening to our interview.
0: Yeah, it's completely different when you're doing something that's, uh, you know, in many ways, scholarly because you have to. If you're writing a work of fiction or you're writing just opinion, you don't need all those footnotes and endnotes and all that research. But right. when you're doing this way, it's just a whole other. It's a whole game. You have got to make sure that everything is tight, your research is good, and, and so on and so forth.
1: Well, can you tell us a little bit about the cover, Vincent? I, I really like this cover, and you know, and as you know, when you're trying to have books for general audiences, covers and images and those kind of things are very important to a- attract people to it. Can you tell us a little bit about the cover, what it means the and you know, the photo or why you chose it or why it was chosen by the publisher?
0: So originally I had a title that was a little bit more obscure, didn't and really and, and we had talked about it being, you know, going with African Americans a bomb, kind of really going right at it. Mm-hmm. And then um I wanted to have uh there were different photos. There's one famous photo of Coretta Scott King where she is at a Women's Strike for Peace event where she has a sign up that says uh, something about um, you know, desegregation and uh, nuclear weapons okay. as well, testing. There were others. There's a very rare photo of Malcolm X meeting uh, with atomic bomb survivors at mm-hmm. Erie Kachiya's apartment. This photo is a pretty general, known photo mm-hmm. of a very civil rights leader. What was important to me in that photo was making sure that Bayard Rustin was in that. Mm-hmm. Be such an essential piece of this book and then having, making sure that the, you know, the, the mushroom cloud and obviously working with the different, um, you know, fonts and, and shading, all that kind of stuff, you know, but I wanted something that was, that, that showed the connection between both. So. Absolutely.
1: Yes. That's a very attractive book cover here. And, uh, and I think um, hopefully when people see it and you can look on our blog our page for this book on the new books network uh, website, and you can click right through. You can see some great information there about Vincent and Tandy and his work at Montgomery College and uh, this book. And you can click right through and purchase the book um, at one of our book selling partners. And you can see this beautiful, lovely cover um, that Vincent has for his book. And that's something, you know, I've talked with people about, you know, before is that, you know, how beautiful a mushroom cloud looks in some ways. But then how, of course, deadly um, and destructive that it is. and It's just such a contrast.
0: Well, yeah, and the mushroom cloud is, is, you know, something that is, that is really the view from the American point of view, right? That's the view Mm -hmm. from from the plane, whereas those in Japan will tell you it wasn't a mushroom cloud. It was actually just a giant pillar of fire, and they see Mm -hmm. something completely different, so.
1: Yes, definitely. It's it's different to be on the receiving end than the uh, the giving end of something like this. That's very important to point out. I'm glad you pointed that out, Vincent, because that's, right, in American culture and history, and so that's what we see. You know, we see the uh, mushroom cloud, you know, the Nola Gay, you know, and so on and so forth going the other direction. And um, it's very different when you're on the, on the ground and on the receiving end. Hopefully it's not something that we have to deal with or see in the near future. You know, as you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, tension between North Korea and the United States and, you know, some other, you know, countries, Iran, you know, with the nuclear kind of things right now. And so this is definitely a, a very relevant topic again.
0: Right, and what what do we see in those things is we see yet again countries uh, of non-white peoples that are being threatened, uh, and that is something that certainly the black community, since 1945, argued that, that overwhelmingly that yes, the bomb doesn't discriminate when it goes off, but people who have it do. And so, mm-hmm. with 90% of the nuclear weapons being held right now by. President Trump and by Vladimir Putin, two white nationalist authoritarian leaders. Um, then that's the frightening piece of, of where they could be used, whether it's nuclear testing or whether it's actually detonation. Right.
1: And so, if you don't mind this, and maybe can you get into uh, some of the things that you touched upon in the book, or uh, you know, some of the things that you researched or some of your findings?
0: Yeah. So um, the book is laid out uh, pretty much chronologically, and it mm-hmm. first pitched this idea. A lot of colleagues said I wasn't going to find much, that uh, African Americans were understandably so too worried about gaining their own freedom and equality and and Mm -hmm. really wasn't on their radar. And and I just, I found an enormous response. Um, So when the the bomb, when 1945, when the bomb was dropped, the majority of the American public rejoiced. 85% of the American public agreed with Truman's decision to use nuclear weapons. 22% of the American public wished that Japan hadn't surrendered, so we dropped more nuclear weapons, killed more people. Mm -hmm. In fact, no poll up until late October 1945 I've ever questioned Truman's decision. But that wasn't the case uh, in the black community. Of course, nothing's monolithic, but in the black community, you immediately had those from when I looked at the black press, like the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Baltimore mm-hmm. African American, to the black church and looking at clergy, uh, to prominent individuals like Bar, uh, Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois and mm-hmm. Zornio Hurston and Langston Hughes, where immediately they were questioning Truman's decision. And some were looking at this through the lens of race. Uh, Langston Hughes is the first to come out and question if Truman's own racism played a role in this and he was certainly right to do so. Truman isn't the most racist president but certainly one of the most racist presidents in U.S. U.S. Mm-hmm. And you had others that were looking at the colonialism issue and uh, you know it was Paul Robeson who immediately in, in 1946 there's a there's a rally in Madison Square Garden 20,000 people are there and he immediately asked the question where is the U.S. getting our uranium to build nuclear weapons and the answer of course was the Belgian controlled Congo. Mm-hmm. Um, so some were seeing it through the lens of peace some were seeing it through the lens of colonialism but they were looking at through a different a different lens completely from from most whites in this country
1: right and you know that's exactly what you said we don't we don't think about the uh civil rights movement and the african-american freedom struggle um going going on or uh you know kind of coinciding or running parallel to uh nuclear weapons and and, and issues with uh you know nuclear weapons and you know the korea um you know vietnam you know, which, you know, these are some you know things you talk about, in, you know, text going up through the Obama years. And yes, going going back there to, you know, Truman and the, and the decision to use the bomb. But these are things that were absolutely going on in parallel. And, you know, African-Americans had uh, thoughts and, you know, and opinions about these subjects as well as so many others. This is just, you know, as you as you have pointed out correctly here in your, your text, you just don't hear about it.
0: Right. You take a a pivotal year like 1955. Mm -hmm. In the summer of 1955, you have Emmett Till saying murder. A few months later, Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on the bus. Uh, But in the middle of that, we also had what is known as the Bandung Conference, the first Mm -hmm. African-Asian conference. And if you read their platform, they were very clear that they were against white supremacy, against colonialism, and against nuclear weapons. It's during this time when the civil rights movement's really kicking into high gear that the French government decides to test their first nuclear weapon weapon, and where? In the Sahara, in Africa. Mm. And so that colonial, this is right when Algeria is having the revolution, right when Ghana and Nkrumah are rising and getting their independence. And so the people in Ghana really feared that the fallout from that test and how it would affect their cocoa industry. And it's Bayard Rustin, the great civil rights leader, the organized here, mm-hmm. who really had his, his activism dates back to the 30s, who puts a team together to try to stop the French test. And we don't hear a lot about Rustin. Why? Because he was gay. So he's marginalized and iced out of this history. But uh, you really would not have had a march on Washington without it. Or a Black Freedom Movement without him, and he is instrumental in connecting these issues on on the nuclear front.
1: Baynard Rustin definitely is is not as uh, as well known or uh, featured as often. Those, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure you know there have been some books and documentaries and stuff more in recent years. But you're right; for so many years, you didn't really hear about him, and you know his his uh, sexual choices or whatever was certainly a large part of it, but. You, know, you definitely do a great job here in your book, here, Vincent, and making sure that people can see the great work that he did—not just in those other areas, but also, you know, with the, you know nuclear arms and these nuclear issues here. So this is a whole other area that um, young people and you know people who are interested in history and you know in these movements can find out and learn about the great work that Vayner Rustin did.
0: Yeah, I mean, Paul Robeson is an just such a, uh, my students have no idea who he is, this giant, this amazing <laughs> individual. And so I'm so glad that Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, has agreed mm-hmm. to will biopic of him because he needs to be discovered and his, yes. his work in this and so many other avenues. Um, so, and even when we look at Dr. King. Um, People look at Dr. King's foray into foreign policy as his mm-hmm. – really in April 4th, 1967, the year to the day he dies with his Beyond Vietnam speech, when he famously calls the United States, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Uh, but actually, if you look at nuclear weapons, he, he's publicly condemning and talking about them as far back as 1957. Uh, and this continues in, in – if you look at it his life, where he learns a lot of this and is influenced on this issue is his wife, of course, Coretta. Mm-hmm. Coretta was a, an activist that dates back to her days at Antioch College. She was influential in Women's Strike for Peace and Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. And um and uh so you see so many black women that are at the forefront of this. Um mm-hmm. you know, especially during the sixties, people like Lorraine Hansberry, Marianne Anderson and, and, mm-hmm.
1: and we and we definitely uh are hearing more and more about women and, and their activities during, during that time period compared to, again, just like, you know, with Bainette Rustin due to his sex, sexuality, you really didn't hear about the women other than being wives and, and those kind of, you know, being involved in that way, right? you know, compared to being like in leadership roles. So very important work that's being done here.
0: Yeah, I mean, Lorraine Hansberry, we, of course, know her for raising in the Sun, but there's, she's more than that, right? She was a... a, a Radical feminist and an anti-nuclear activist. Um, and so she famously goes in a movie theater and she she sees a, a movie on Hiroshima and she comes out and, and says, no more Hiroshima's, not now, not ever. And then uh, she her last play that she ever wrote was about a nuclear holocaust and what happens to the survivors. Mm. Um, you know, this is the, the, these are again things that we just don't think about when we when we think of Lorraine Hansberry. Um, but this was this is uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Again, we think of her mm-hmm. her work obviously with writing and playwrights, etc. But I found a letter she wrote to Claude Barnett in 1945 when she was visibly upset about what was going on. Called Truman quote the butcher of Asia and was upset oh. that African Americans weren't rising up.
1: And so those are those are some things that I think people should know. You know, and that they certainly shouldn't should know about. And let's kind of move forward a little bit and talk a little bit about today's world and, you know, the Obama administration. And, you know, towards the end of the book there, you know, you really uh, put an emphasis and spent some time talking about, you know, the age of Obama and, you know, in terms of nuclear weapons, Nobel Peace Prize and such. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that was the hardest part for me to write. Um, Again, as a historian, the worst thing I could do was... Predict something and then it'd be wrong, and this book's mm-hmm. out there, but I knew I had to address him obviously. And so, one thing before I even got to Obama with politics that I wanted to show is that. He doesn't come out of nowhere that if we look at the role of black politicians, they have been Mm -hmm. influential in this. So you had people like uh, Ron Dellums out of California, Mm -hmm. really was the leader in fighting Ronald Reagan to stop the building of the MX missile. Jesse Jackson, when he ran in 84 and 88, he had the most anti-nuclear platform of any candidate and got millions of votes. Uh, People like John Conyers and Harold Washington, who the first black mayor of Chicago, was one of uh, President Obama's uh, heroes. So we see Mm -hmm. Long line of uh, black politicians who were at the forefront of this. And so Obama. You know, as a, as a even as a student, he was at the famous June twelfth, nineteen eighty two march, and and he writes about it. So he was he was against nuclear weapons even as a student and as a and as a candidate. And when he gets into office, one of the first things he does is the famous Prague speech, uh, which is arguably the most anti nuclear speech of any president outside of maybe mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy's nineteen sixty three commencement address at American University. And you know, I remember. I take students uh, to Japan every summer, and Mm -hmm. and uh, we go to the ceremonies and meet with survivors. And I remember the first summer I went after President Obama had gotten elected and gave the Prague speech, and the mayor at that time, Akiba of Hiroshima, started a campaign called the Obama Majority. And I remember there and seeing. Japanese citizens in Hiroshima wearing Obama majority T-shirts. It was the first time that we sent a U.S. ambassador, Ambassador Roos, to the ceremony, and citizens were coming up to me and handing me stacks of letters saying, "Send these to your president and thank him for what wow. he's." It was the first time I had been there that I was really proud of who my president was. And Obama started on a on a you know he had the nuclear summits to try to get all the loose nuclear weapons making materials uh, mm-hmm. safe, in which. Uh, you know, if you think back, he got the materials out of the Ukraine, enough to make four nuclear weapons, and he got them out only months before Ukraine fell into chaos. Mm. And he started, signed the New START Treaty. I think the most important thing he did as president, bar none, was getting Iran to, to uh, the Iran nuclear deal without firing a single shot. Um, so I think he there's credit for that. Did he remove as many nuclear weapons as I wanted him to? No, absolutely not. Did he um, Should he have taken nuclear weapons off air trigger alert? Yes, especially with this president. Um, so there did I, I wish he didn't sign on to spending a trillion dollars over 30 years to build more nuclear weapons. So there's things that I certainly think he could have done more on, but mm-hmm. I've never put them, that really on him. That's on us. He never said, yes, I can. He said, yes, we can. And so if we wanted mm. to do something, then there should have been a million people in the streets making him do what he said he was going to do. I mean, Dr. King understood that when when President, or excuse me, Obama understood that when President Obama ran for office in one of the debates he's asked, would Dr. King support you? He said, no, he'd be in the streets making me do what I said I was going to do. So I think hmm. I, I really put that on, on us as activists and concerned citizens on this issue. And lastly, I mean, with, with him, I had pushed, and I certainly wasn't the only one for so long for him to visit Hiroshima. And so so to me, that was a hugely important piece. It wasn't about yes. gave a formal apology or anything like that, but I will never forget being up at you know four in the morning and skyping with atomic bomb survivors as we're all crying, watching you know my president do that. So I think it was incredible, especially when we see the rhetoric that we see today. So, um, so yeah, I think he fits in this kind of again narrative of the of a long he comes. There's, there's so many African Americans that came before him fighting mm-hmm. on this issue, and so it, it made sense. Yeah,
1: and thank you for sharing, you know, th- that story with us there. I mean, and I remember as, as well, you know, when uh, Obama went there and there was some controversy, you know, should we should he apologize, you know, for, um, you know, what America's did. You know, everything that happens with presidents, as you know, you know, people are going to have one, you know, be on one side or, or, the, or the other. But it certainly was no matter what you think about that. It was very impactful and it was definitely some history being made there. One other thing I wanted to ask you, and I know as a historian, you know, you know a lot about the past and you can analyze the past and you kind of, as you mentioned, you don't want to talk about, the, you know, or you don't want to get caught saying something wrong about the future. But <laughs> where, where do you think we go next, you know, in terms of, you know, African-Americans and, you know, their interest in these kind of nuclear issues?
0: Well, you know, right now what we're seeing a lot is the kind of – or what we're hearing a lot is this buzzword of, this buzzword of, of intersectionality, right? And mm-hmm. so we're starting to realize that Black Lives Matter is connected to what happens with DREAMers and DACA, and it is connected to the travel ban, and it is connected to climate change and environmental racism. We're seeing all of these things. But yet still peace issues, nuclear weapons still remain somewhat on the outside. And you know, part of that I think is still kids see it uh, or activists see nuclear weapons as abstract and maybe nobody's crazy enough to use them. But that's starting to change because people see this president, and now they are generally a- a- afraid again. You know, when I mm. do book on the June twelfth, nineteen eighty-two march, the largest in u.s history for for anything and when i've asked people organizers how they did it and one of the common things is they didn't even really need to recruit because so many people genuinely fear that there was going to be nuclear war with russia that they were coming to them and so i think we're starting to see that with north korea and with with trump but what i what needs to happen is the non-white world needs to realize how this more affects them even more so and uh you know in terms of Nuclear testing, Trump has talked about resuming that and looking at what nuclear testing has done to Native Americans and French Polynesia and Islands and Kazakhstan and Australian Aborigines, uh, when they look at the populations and where people are located in concentrations and how that could affect Native uh, African Americans. Again, whether it's Korea or the Middle East or uh, Iran, how this affects non-white peoples. And so... um, I think we need to see that now coming together in a a sustained movement because, you know, as King said, what does it matter if we're integrating lunch counters? What does it matter if we achieve social justice if we're dead from nuclear war? Is something that King consistently talked about. You know, how can we talk about broken down infrastructure in Houston or in Baltimore or in Southeast D.C. and not talk about spending a trillion dollars on nuclear weapons when we already have enough to end the planet, right? So I think economic conversion, something that was done in the 1980s, is something we really need to focus on. And you know, we talk about all the socially conscious athletes now, which I'm so happy about. But at the same point, we need to realize that in the 1980s, there was a group called Athletes United for Peace. Joe um, White of the Boston Celtics, the Baltimore Orioles baseball team, and on and on of athletes that were fighting against nuclear weapons. So um, I think these are things that we can learn from. We need to, you know, emulate. We need to go back to. But I think uh, it is it is crucial that this issue really is up there with all the other things we're fighting. You know, I hear some people say to me today when I give talks or do book talks that there's so many fronts we're fighting on now, right? You're trying to put food on the table and not get killed by the police on the way home and you're trying to sur- just survive and all these things, so I don't have time to worry about some of like nuclear weapons. True. Uh, it's not saying one supersedes the other, but these issues were there in the 1980s too, and we somehow managed to come together. Um, and there, there was a, you know, we we've had these. There, there's, it's always been that way. So I think um, we're at a real crucial junction now, and uh, and one of the keys is getting the non-white world to see how they are connected. And this is something we've had: Pan Africanism, whether it was under Marcus Garvey, whether it was the Black Arts Movement in the 60s. Um, Uh, Whether it was the golden era of hip hop in the 80s. But you know, where I teach now, we're one of the most diverse schools in the country. My campus is 80%, if not higher, non white. My classes are 99% non white. But what you'll see is my African students, and I have students from Cameroon, from Ethiopia, from Nigeria, the Congo, Ghana, Kenya, they will tell me first generation, they're taught when they come here not to associate with African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're not African American. African Americans are are lazy and they droop their pants, etc. And my African American students will say. I'm not African. African booty scratcher? That's a diss. No, I'm from Southeast. I'm from D.C. And so trying to explain that when a cop is beating you, he's not stopping, waiting and saying, wait, are you from Southeast or are you from Cameroon? He's beating you because you're black. And so part of that is getting them to understand and look at the world through colonialism and how what happens in Korea or what happens in the Middle East or what happens in Africa is related to what happens here. And then when they when they see the world that way and have that power and see how the nuclear issue um, is important in that in that way, then hopefully you can get a more sustained movement.
1: That's powerful stuff, and I, I hope you're right because you know I think back to what you said, you know, uh, quoting Martin Luther King there. You know, all those things that we fight for are well and good, but if we're all dead. You know, from a nuclear blast, none none of us gonna. Matter.
0: No, and I mean, you know, and, and so students, when hopefully when they read this book and and or anybody for that matter, you know, I have students mm. that you know they'll say that they really their hero is Malcolm X, their hero is Huey Newton, their hero is you know a Jimmy Baldwin. And when mm. they read this book and go, oh, and they'll say, I didn't realize Malcolm X actually was involved in this issue. I didn't know Jimmy Baldwin was going to marches and talking about this. I didn't know that. And they're realizing, you know, that that this issue was always there uh, for them. Right. And, and so hopefully it gets them to, it, it resonates.
1: If you don't mind, maybe you mentioned earlier that you're working on another book. Can you share maybe some other places uh, that if people are interested in your work, they, they could find you or, you know, like your upcoming book or...
0: Sure anything that you want sure to- so um i i write pretty regularly um for huffington post uh, and then stuff gets okay. reposted okay. to other you know sites which so i'm pretty easy to find on, on online i'm still doing um a lot of talks i'm heading to franklin and marshall pretty soon and then i'm doing a west coast tour so those things are still happening okay. and and, I, and i'm active on i'm pretty active on twitter um but the next book is so in in this book in the first book one of the things with the, I looked at with the June 12th March uh was there was a real issue there of should we combine these issues because one thing African American anti-nuclear activists had to deal with was prejudice and racism within these movements. Um, there were still a lot of cases dominated by white middle class pacifists who did not see that racism should be a part of this and after all of the, the dealings back and forth the day of the, of the June 12th March 50% of the leadership was African American and we see thousands of African Americans pouring out of Bed-Stuy and Harlem and so on and so forth marching for this issue. Um, Celebrity and just regular folks, and so the June twelfth march. So many people I run into have told me this was how they got started. This was what inspired them to get in this movement. So I wanted to look at how did they get a million people together without a cell phone, mm-hmm. uh, without social media. Um, And yet they managed to do this whole thing. And so when we're looking at movements and we're looking at intersectionality and we're looking at how do you sustain a big movement, nobody's ever written about this particular march. So everything from interviewing the organizers to looking at how the official poster was created to looking at how what was the, the... press and the media of this um, and on and on. And so that's the, that's the work I'm, I'm doing right now. I'm hoping that it's going to be out uh, June 2020, which would be a pretty significant date. It's, it's the 7th mm. anniversary of the atomic bombing is 2020. It's also the date of Mayors for Peace uh, set for nuclear abolition. So that's the goal.
1: Well, good luck reaching that goal. I, th- I think you will. And uh, I would love to get you back on the show to talk about that book when you get it done. That'd be great. love it, it, it. be on. Absolutely, and you know. And again, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us today. I know you have a student in the office there.
0: She actually just <laughs> she you. was so funny because uh, she I could see her. She was listening a little bit, and so she beelined over to our library, read a copy of my <laughs> book, and said, "Can I borrow it?" I said, "Take it." She just left. So yeah, maybe you wouldn't have read it. Now she is. So yeah, well
1: that's well that well that's good. I'm glad that she uh, got to hear a professor talk a little bit about his book, and now she's interested. But yeah, again, thank you so much, Vincent J. and Tandy. Uh African Americans and, and the bomb. Nuclear weapons, colonialism and the black freedom movement. And we you know, we're on the New Books Network, the African American Studies Channel. And uh I guess uh that'll be it for us today. I'm gonna let you get back to work. I know uh the fall semester is uh in full swing there. Um so if you don't mind, can you say goodbye to our audience here?
0: uh, goodbye. And I really appreciate you guys listening. I hope you enjoy the book. And, uh, if you have any, uh, questions or for me, uh, feel free to, to, uh, email me at vincent.intandi at montgomerycollege.edu or find me on Twitter with Vincent J and at Vincent J Intandi, and And, uh, I hope to hear from all of you and I hope you enjoy the book. And I just want to thank you again for giving me the time.
1: Oh, it, oh, it is. It's my pleasure. And, uh um I think this is a very interesting topic, and I feel very strongly that you're going to be hearing from uh, <laughs> some of our listeners, Vincent. You don't have to worry about that. So, again, thank you so much for your time, and I will let you go. And thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next time on the African American Studies channel of the New Books Network. Peace and love. Okay, we're back here on the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stancil. And we just finished up our interview with Vincent J. Intandi, African-Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism and the Black Freedom Movement, published by Stanford University Press. As I mentioned uh, prior, this is a very timely book and Vincent would love to hear from you. So get in contact with him via Twitter uh, or, or email. And he would love to hear from you about your thoughts and opinions about nuclear issues. And on that note, peace and love. Thank you for listening on the African American Studies channel of the Nubus Network.